Well, good morning once again. All right. So we continue in the book of John. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, Jen and I just came back from vacation. Uh, it was a much needed break and rest and relaxation. But one of the things I really enjoy uh, about going on vacation is I take time to stop. Um, I take time, dedicated time, more time to stop and spend time with the Lord. Um, I get up early. Jen can testify. She stays in bed. <laughs> but I get up early and I find a quiet place, uh, usually outside. And I read and do devotion and pray and just kind of have some time where I can sit there and think. And then I study. Uh, one thing I have found recently is that there's this burning desire to study more uh, on the things of God, doctrine, theology, stuff like that. And one of the things that has happened is I've started to have a conversation with a friend on how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know we are reading things correctly with the right intent? When you get up there and preach or you're having discussions, how do you know you're saying the right things? And I really enjoyed the sermon a couple weeks ago that Clay gave on presumption and assumption. Don't read into it what you want to hear. Don't read too much into things. Don't try interpreting your life into the Bible, but the Bible should be interpreted to your life. Um, and, and so I really took heed to that, and it's interesting because... One of the books I'm reading right now is how to interpret the Bible, how to read the Bible, different things. Just, just as refresher and prep and those good things. And, you know, one of the things we want to be reminded of is that we don't read too much into a passage. Don't make a passage say something it wasn't saying because it is something you want to hear. When we come to a passage with a bias, we might be surprised when we realize it is saying something completely different. When that happens, we must realize this is the Holy Spirit speaking to us, letting us know that something isn't correct. And I say these things because this is a passage that can be often be read into or interpreted a way that isn't meant to be interpreted. And we'll discuss some of that here, and so the sermon for today's title, as you can see, is The Greatest Thirst, okay? The Great Thirst. Um, now, I believe in your Bibles, uh, this is known as The Greatest Invitation, but we're going to concentrate on verse 37 today and, and this great thirst, and this is a great passage because it helps us realize where we stand, and what happens. This is a great gospel presentation. These are great conversations to have with people. And so before I begin, I want us to remember why 
John is writing the way he is writing. Why is he saying what he is saying? And this is really important for this passage. Well, it's important for all of John's passages. But for this specific passage, this is very important. Okay? John is writing to people after Christ. And he's writing for what? So if you'll turn to John 20, 30 through 31, we'll see that John writes, Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why is he writing this? He's writing this because he is sharing the good news. This is a gospel presentation. This is evangelism at heart. The whole book of John is an evangelistic writing. He's writing so people will believe. And so the events that take place are things that they're familiar with. The times and sayings that are happening are things people can go out and find witness to and say, yes, these things happened. But he doesn't go into such great detail where he picks out every minute thing that Jesus did. And he tells us, I'm only putting the things in that will help you see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the Messiah. And so as we talk about and discuss John 7, 37 through 39, I want us to remember this purpose. So if you all stand, we'll read John 37 through 39, and then we'll pray. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said about the Spirit, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as the Spirit, as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning as we read your word to be pierced with the Spirit, Lord. We ask that the scales be removed from our eyes and our ears are open and our hearts are open, Lord. That we see and hear this great truth, Lord. That you spring in us this great desire, this thirst to know more about you, Lord. And then a desire and a thirst to sit there to want to share your word, to spread the good news. That it is something that we have received life in that we want to sit there and share with others, Lord. To share the truth about who you are. About what you have done. And how you continue to love your creation, Lord, by continually giving us grace. Lord, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.
so right now we know that the Feast of Tabernacles is going on, the Feast of Booths. So let's just review what that is. Remember, this is the feast that was declared in remembrance of the Exodus. So they sit there for seven days. All the men and families are required to come to Jerusalem. And in remembrance of the Exodus, they live in these huts, in these branches that they collect, and they build these little huts, these tents, and they live outside the temple, okay, to remember what they've gone through or where they've come from. But more importantly, it's a remembrance. The idea of it is a remembrance that God was a provider, that he was sovereign. And so what happens, and this is very important, that John puts out there on the last day of the feast. What happens on the last day of the feast? When we go back to Leviticus, it's a big celebration. It's the biggest celebration. This is the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of the Booths. This is the last day. This is, they've spent seven days now remembering what's happened. So where should their mind be focused? How great God is. And in this greatness of God, God has provided or promised that there will be a Savior. There will be a Messiah. And so they're recognizing that God is who God says he is. That God is a provider. That God is sovereign. And that God is a promise keeper. And they know at the end of this, these seven days, they're remembering, they're feeling this fact that God is going to provide. And they're looking forward to this. And that's why he says, the great day. So what happens on this day? Now I started researching and looking at different things. And it was kind of interesting, some of the stuff I found out. Because as you read commentary, some commentaries, some, they bring out the fact that there was a part of this feast that began to happen that wasn't prescribed in the Bible, but it was given to help people focus on the fact that God was the provider. And it was the ceremony of water. What they would do is they would go down to, uh, sorry if I don't say this right, Salome in Shechem, okay, but otherwise known as Jacob's well. And they would collect water and they would walk through in a procession. The Jewish elders would walk through a procession through what they would call the water gate. Okay? Which is one of the entrances towards the temple of the city. And they'd walk up and there would be this big procession of these vessels of water. And then they would pour the water over the altar. And then they would begin to sing praise. And what they would repeat can be found in Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Endless supplies of salvation. And what the idea was, it was a remembrance of the promise God had made with Jacob and Abraham and Isaac that they will be his people and he will provide salvation. This was another recognition of the fact that there's this promise that a Messiah will be coming. It was that 
remembrance that God is who he said he is. And the other aspect of this is that it was a recognition that they were sinful people. That throughout the Exodus, they recognized the fact that they rejected, they questioned God's means. And that they needed to repent of their sins as they waited for this Messiah. So as we continue on with verse 37, we're going to dive into verse 37. We're going to spend quite a bit of time here, hence the title, The Great Thirst. On the last day of the feast, the great day, so they've seen this procession. It's going on. It's wrapping up the day. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. They're living like they've lived during the Exodus. They're living in these little tents, in these booths, in these little huts made of sticks. Now think about what you're sleeping in. I mean, this is like a little lean-to, and they're all over the place. And the town's filled with people, and they're giving, the Jewish elders are reading scripture, and they're praising, and they're singing psalms, and giving praise to God that he's this provider, and there's this great salvation, and the idea is remember the promise God has made, that there will be a Messiah. And here comes this procession of water, and they're singing the joy of salvation from Isaiah. And at the end of the day, after all this has gone on with this hope of the promise, Jesus stands up. He stands up when everybody, this is the end of it. He stands up and cries out. Now he's not meek. He's not mild. He's crying out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What are they hearing? What they are hearing at this point is he is saying, all this that you've done, all this that you're remembering, all this waiting you're doing, I am the answer. Your waiting is over. I am here. See, this thirst that he's talking about isn't a thirst for money pleasure, honor, rank. Those things that become distracting for us that people tend to go after. If you thirst, what he's talking about is a spiritual thirst. A spiritual thirst. But where does this thirst come from? Where does this thirst come from? This is one of the things... I really enjoy about really diving in to the scriptures. Because what we begin to realize is how often Jesus used this term of thirst, this desire for something. How often he talked about the bread of life and being thirsty and being nourished and finding sustenance. And it's finding those things in God. The spiritual awakening, this realization that 
you are sinful. This realization that you can do nothing right for the sins and crimes you've committed against a holy God. It's this realization that there has to be an answer. And so you begin to desire this relief. You start feeling the pressures of your sin. You start feeling secluded and lonely and just pressure of there's nothing I can do wrong. Luther talked about this. How do I pay for my sins? What do I do? There's nothing I can do right. I can't make this right. I've sinned here. I've sinned here. I've sinned here. I've sinned here. How many times do we sin in a day? It was interesting. I listened to a sermon by Sproul a few weeks ago, and he brought out the point that if you sin just once a day, if you committed a crime once a day, you told one little lie once a day, that's 365 lies a year. What if you live 10 years? That's 3,650 lies. And what's the average lifespan of a person? Heck, we read early on in the Bible, people lived 100 plus years. How many sins is that? If they're just committing one a day. I ask you, how many sins a day do you commit? How many sins a day do we commit? There's no way we can make it right. And so this desire, this deep and earnest desire for relief and help of realizing I'm lost begins to grow in us. This desire of I've got to make it right, this desire for forgiveness. Now I want you to all just think of for a moment. The moment you began to feel your sins, the moment you began to feel the weight and the pressure of your sin, of being confronted with this weight of a depraved soul, of confinement, when you knew you were wrong, what you had done was wrong, and what that you recognized there was nothing you could do yourself to make it right or go away. That there just there was no answer. That ugliness we begin to feel, the upset stomach, the pains in the chest, the, the shame of how we just want to hide in a dark corner and just kind of get away from it and not recognize it. Or if I don't talk about it, it didn't happen. We've all been there. We've all been there. The hopelessness, the lostness, and the loneliness of it. This is where this invitation starts. These feelings are a recognition that something isn't right. We know something isn't right. So I ask you this, where did these feelings come from? Why or how did you know something wasn't right? How did you know that if you were to be judged right then and there, that you would be found guilty? See, not everybody 
has these feelings. And, and this is the point. This is the point in which Jesus is talking about. How do we know that there's something wrong? Because not everybody's going to have those feelings. See, those that heard the words at Peter, at Peter, those that heard the words of Peter at Pentecost were cut to the heart. Okay? They heard the words and they began to feel their guilt. They began to feel shame. And so they asked Peter what they should do. So in Acts 2, 38-39, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are after you. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's the key. For those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, we have to recognize when we begin to feel these feelings, that is the Holy Spirit working inside of us, bringing us to the realization God is the creator, that we have committed a crime against God, and he is the only answer, that there is nothing you can do to make it right. So why is this important that Jesus is saying this at this specific moment? Again, remember, this is just six months before the Passover. In six months, Jesus is going to die on a cross. In just six months, he's going to leave Jerusalem after this and come back and die. So why is it important here? Because they're remembering the fact that God was the provider, that God rescued them, that God brought them out. Who's going to rescue them from their sins? They're asking for salvation. It is Jesus. He's standing up and pointing to himself. He is pointing to himself. If anyone thirsts, who's going to thirst? It's those that the Spirit is working in for the recognition of their sins because he's saying, let him come to me and drink. Remember the words of Peter, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you are being called, if you have felt that guilt, if you have felt that pressure, if you felt that confinement, you felt that loneliness, that is the Holy Spirit, that is God calling you to himself. It is a recognition that we have committed crimes against a holy God. And Jesus is saying he is the answer. There's no other way. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. See, Jesus is referring back to some Old Testament prophecies, some things that are going to stick out. So like Isaiah 55, 1. Come everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters. This invitation isn't in an urgent tone. It's addressing the deep spiritual longing of wanting to seek the Lord and find rest and salvation. We have to remember this thing, this event that's going on, they're used to these sacrifices. They, they're not ignorant of the fact that they had to pay restitution for their sins. This isn't a new concept. From the very beginning, they had to offer sacrifice in various ways to try to make atonement for their sin. And it usually included what? The, the spreading of blood. The spilling of blood. And so Jesus is giving them a little hint that come to me because I will provide you the salvation. I will provide you restitution. See, this isn't the first time Jesus has made this reference. And if we remember the purpose of John, John's point is to show proof and to share the gospel with people of who Jesus is. And he shares another story in John 4, 13 through 14, about the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying? I am the only way in which you can feel relief. I am the only way in which you can come into a right relationship with God. I am the only way in which you will be found innocent. See, that's what salvation is. Salvation is being saved from judgment. Salvation is being saved from the penalty. And he's saying the only way is through me. The only way is through me. then again in Isaiah 44 3 he says Isaiah says for I will pour water out Isaiah repeats from God God says for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants see to come to Jesus and to drink, what he's saying is, you have to believe in me to enter into a trusting, ongoing, and personal relationship with himself. It's not simply by belief. 
It's not simply by belief, but it's by an ongoing and personal relationship with him. Because there's many people that recognize who Jesus is, right? We're even told Satan recognizes that Jesus is who he says he is. But does that mean Satan has a relationship with Satan? No. See, what Jesus is saying, come to me, have a relationship with me, and let's make it personal. It's a personal invitation. Realize this, that what Jesus is offering is a personal invitation to the people to have a relationship with him. Both the image of coming to Jesus as one would come to a person and then drinking is the fact that it's a wholehearted, personal involvement and participation. See, so often we see brothers and sisters in Christ tout that they are believers. But how often of them have a personal relationship with Christ? It's shown in their daily lives. Brothers and sisters, we have to spend daily time with Christ. We have to spend daily time with Christ. How great is it? What a gift of grace it is to be given a great thirst. Think about what that thirst is asking us to do. It's a thirst to rely on God. It's a thirst to rely and depend and believe and confess that Jesus is the answer and he paid the price. The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, and needed sinners. I love how J.C. Ryle put that. The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. That's the thirst. The recognition that we can't make it right. See, until the lost realize they're lost, they see no need to be saved. Those that sin and, huh, it is what it is, they don't realize they're sinning. Oh yeah, this might not be right, but it's every man for himself. See, it's only those that begin to feel this way, begin to have the Spirit working inside them, begin to realize the gift that's being given them at that moment. The recognition of your sins is a gift. It's a gift. Being given the gift of a desire for God, wow. Let him come unto me. See, it shows us that there's an answer to this emptiness, that there's an answer to these desires. There's an answer or a cure 
out there for what we're feeling. And that answer is him, that we can have peace with God. Christ is the answer. Not only to believe him, but to believe in him. Then he continues on in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So first he offers the invitation. He offers the invitation through the recognition that something isn't right. See, he's bringing out the things that they've remembered this whole time of their sins and that there's this need for salvation and that God's going to fulfill it through a promise of a Messiah. And Jesus is that answer. And he tells them, those whoever believes in me. So who's going to believe in him? Those that God has called, right? But it's an open invitation. They have to cast aside all confidence in themselves and their own abilities. They have to come to Christ by faith as sinners. And in doing so, they will find relief. See, Jesus is giving a summary of the teachings and implications of several things he's said in the past. This isn't a new message. But he's picking the time. Think about the timing this is happening. And the things Jesus has said up until this point. The last day of this feast. The last day of the boot, the tabernacle of the booths. Jesus stands up and cries out and definitively says, there's no doubt what he is claiming here in front of all these witnesses. The salvation you're praying for, the salvation you've been singing these psalms for, the salvation you've been remembering, the promise you're remembering, I am he. I am the fulfillment. I am the Messiah. I am God. There's no question what he's saying. Think about where he is at and what is going on. What has just happened prior to this? They've tried to figure out a way to arrest him. And where's he at? He's still there. We've just read a couple weeks ago. They've tried to arrest him for the things he has said and the teachings he is doing. And he stands up and boldly says in front of all these people, I am God. I am the Messiah. They have waited over 400 years. I am the promise that you've been remembering and praying about for the last seven days. I am the fulfillment of that. You've prayed for it. Here's your answer. You've prayed for it. I'm here. I'm here.
And then he goes on to say, with that, as you believe, I will do my work through you. See, he says he's the fulfillment of the promise. And then he says, then you have a duty once you believe. It doesn't just stop with belief. Right? Let's look at Proverbs 4, 20 through 23. <clears throat> my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. <coughs> Keep them within your head. For they are life to those who died with them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it will flow the springs of life. See, centering one's life to God for which a person does all thinking, feeling, and choosing. Once you believe... Now we have to act upon it, and Christ will do his work through us. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, see, he's letting them know right now, the whole Old Testament does what? Points to him. Because they've just remembered what's been happening for the last seven days. They've read the scriptures, they've talked about the scriptures, they've studied the scriptures, they've listened to all these sayings, and how they're all pointing to himself. Out of his heart, out of whose heart? The believer's heart. Once you believe, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You will live a life with Christ. And out of that will outpour such relief from all the pressure that it will become infectious. That it will flow onto others. See, these words we've just read from Proverbs, we need to take the heart. Because what is being said here is asking us to guard our hearts. See, when the Spirit fills us and we nurture the Spirit through reading the Word, out will flow the Spirit. Out will flow the Spirit. Mark carries on with these words in, verse, in uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 22, when he says, what defiles a person? So if, if Jesus is nourishing and out will flow the Spirit and it's more than life, then what's the opposite of that? Well, he says, for from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Are those not all the things we feel pressure? Are those not all the things we feel guilt and sin from? And then Jesus gives us himself and fills us with living water, gives us the relief, gives us salvation. What an amazing gift, this thirst to know him. And this thirst comes from his word, can be nurtured 
and fulfilled through his word by spending more and more time with him. See, Isaiah 58, 11, this is after the infamous 53 through 55 chapters with the great suffering servant, right? And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Your thirst will be satisfied in the Lord. Your thirst will be satisfied with his word. This is a blessing for those who are obedient to him, for those who believe. And remember, believing is just not a thought of mind or a state of mind. Believing is belief through action. I can believe something or say something's it and do completely the opposite. Does that show any evidence to what I believe? No, it shows the contrary. That's what James was getting at. By the things we do, we demonstrate what our beliefs are. If we don't live according to the word, what becomes of our life? What do we begin to witness? Something completely opposite. No wonder people look at people that profess to be Christians or believers and say, you hypocrite. They're right. If we're not living according to the word, if we are not living like fountains of living water, if we're not living because we've recognized this grace we've been given, this gift of thirst, this gift of desire of things of God, why should they listen to us? We're just an empty mouthpiece. We're just bumping gums. And trust me, the world today is ready to sit there and point at you and say, hey, bum gumper. So what are the implications of belief and relying on Christ? One, you ready for this? Abundant satisfaction. Not mere satisfaction, abundant, more than you can ever expect. Abundant satisfaction. What does abundance mean? More than you need. More than you could ever want. Here's an abundance of satisfaction. Here's an abundance of grace. Here's an abundance of relief. Think about that. Christ dies and takes our sins, pays the penalty for me and for you. Think about that abundance. Not only will we have enough for ourselves, but we will become blessings and fountains for others. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. More than we could ever expect. We are going to be giving so much more than we, I just want some relief from this. 
oh my gosh. Do our lives demonstrate that? Are we living that way? Are we showing the abundance of grace we have? Do we believe it? If you don't live that way, I ask you, do you truly believe it? Because this isn't just something you read and say, okay, I believe. No, this is a personal relationship. When you truly believe, you have a personal relationship with your Savior. You have a personal relationship with God. Who knows you. These aren't just mere words. Because he's going to turn you into an instrument. He's going to use you. By word and by deed. Directly and indirectly. He's going to lead, use you to leave marks on other people. That's why we're called and commanded to share the gospel Ladies and gentlemen, we are the fountains of living water. We are a living testimony of our Lord and Savior, of the work He has done in our lives. Think about that time you came to recognition of who Christ was. Think about the guilt and the pressure and the ugliness you felt. How you wanted to cry and crawl into yourself. And the moment you believed, the moment you proclaimed your faith in him, the instant relief you felt. There's no better person to witness about Christ than a new believer. Why? Because they want to scream from the rooftops the relief they feel. The realization that they know they have been given life. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we need to spend daily time in the word to remember that. See, we take advantage of it sometimes and we forget how dark and ugly those feelings were. That was the point of the tabernacle of booths, or the feast of the tabernacle, the feast of booths. It was to call back that remembrance. We need to remember to spend time with the Lord because that helps us recognize the fact of how lost we were. And what a gift we've been given. As we roll on to verse 39, I want you to look at the change. When we talked about reading scripture, we have to look for these changes. So in verse 39, he says, now this he said about the spirit. What's he saying? This is a commentary. This is John's commentary about what Jesus has just said. So John is helping us 
realize how to interpret what he's saying here. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So you're going to be given a gift, right? A gift of what? A gift of the Spirit. And then here's his commentary. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember, this is after Acts. This is after Jesus has ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit has gone out. This is after Pentecost. And so he's saying this event happened prior to Pentecost, so there's no confusion what's going on. But he's saying the Spirit was still there. The Spirit isn't something new. Remember, the Spirit was there from the very beginning. When we see in Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit was present in the world. The Spirit is all through the Old Testament. And many people look at this and go, oh, this is, this is when the Spirit enters. Well, no, the Spirit was there from the very beginning. The Trinity is there from the very beginning of Genesis 1.1. We look at Numbers 27.18. A man whom I in the Spirit. Deuteronomy 34.9. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the Spirit. Ezekiel 2.2, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I hear him speaking to me. Daniel 5.11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of the Holy God. Micah 3.8, but as for me, I am filled with the power, with the Spirit of the Lord. So don't be confused when you read this and go, well, is this when the Spirit comes in? No, the Spirit was there from the beginning, but this is an empowering of the Spirit now. Jesus has been called up, and now he's going to give you a new Spirit. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, one, we realize what this is. We realize that this is the gospel. This is the message we share. This is the message in which we live by. This is the invitation and the cure. And what will happen once we're cured. One, the lost need to realize they're lost. We need to realize we were once lost. We need to remember how lost we were. And then we need to, to help the lost see that they're lost, that there is a need in their lives. Then we provide them with the cure or the invitation. Let him come unto me and drink. See, he is the supplier of all spiritual needs. He is where they will find their sustenance. He is where we will find our sustenance. This is where action is taken. See, when we believe, when we believe, when we believe in Christ and his works, we, God will give us more than we could ever expect. He will give us more than we can ever expect. 
abundant satisfaction. When we are filled with the Spirit, let the fountains of Christ's blood, the fountain of life, the fountain that is deep and wide, will pour out of us. When I was studying this, just that old children's hymn, it just came to me what, that, what those words were meaning, deep and wide. A river of life flowing deep and wide. Saying it as a kid, you're just singing these words, you're having fun, deep and wide. Well, deep and wide, okay? See, smiles on people's faces, you remember that song, now you know what it means. And then I'm reading the lyrics, go, man, there's just something missing. There's something missing. And we start talking about the river of blood, the fountain of blood. In that hymn just brought tears to my eyes. Because it was that realization right here what Jesus was proclaiming, what he was saying, and who he sang it to. They weren't ignorant of who God was. What he is saying and proclaiming right here is, I am the fulfillment of the promise. You ask for it and God is answering. Think about this. He stands up and cries out, I am God. I am the fulfillment of the promise. You come to me. You believe in me. And I will give you more than you will ever dream of. I will give you more than you will ever dream of. And so what I wanted to just end with is I'm going to regurgitate one of Pastor Clay's uh, sayings that is just stuck out in me. You know, we hear certain sermons and there's just times where something is said and it just rings and, and it just doesn't go away. And he said, let our lives be a demonstration of the doctrine we know. Don't live life casually with Christ. Don't live a casual life. Live life with a purpose. Live life with the purpose God has given you. Because he has given you life. Think about that. Live life with the purpose God has given you. Because he's given you life. Eternal life life, saving life, an abundant life. Are we living life the way by which we proclaim God has given us? Do our lives demonstrate the glory and grace of the work Christ has done? See, we have to remember our redemption is in the work of God.
so we must show it. We must be obedient and make God the priority of our lives. Not just wait till we go on vacation. Not just wait for that quiet time, but be purposeful in what we do and make him the priority and demonstrate that to others. Let's just not talk the talk. Let's not just bump our gums. But let's walk the life that Christ has given us. For when we thirst, we can come to him and drink. And out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. His waters. We will thirst no more. What a gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the gift of life you've given us. Lord, we thank you for your words. We thank you for revealing to us our ignorant minds, Lord. Thank you for creating us, creating in us a desire for you, Lord. We pray for more thirsts. We pray to have those strong, unrelenting desires for you. Lord, oftentimes we sit there and pray for a desire to be in your word more, a desire to want things more of you. But Lord, give us a desire to want to live that way, not just to be in it and to read it, but to apply it. Lord, let it affect us and change us. Lord, make us fountains. Let our lives demonstrate undoubtedly to others that there is something definitely different and that there's no mistake, but it's the life and blood of Christ that is flowing through our veins. Let us not be ashamed, Lord. We thank you for the precious gift of life you've given us, the precious gift of changing our hearts, the precious gift of drawing us in, Lord. We recognize the fact that we are your chosen people, Lord, that you have called us home, that you have brought us into a relationship with you, that there was nothing we could have ever done to make it right. And it took you, it took an action by you for that to happen. Lord, just thank you for saving us. Lord, continue to use us. As we sit there and grow as a church, as we sit there and try to find how you will sit there and use us, Lord, and as we are obedient to you, Lord, give us the opportunity to share your word. Give us the opportunity to share water from your fountain. Give us the opportunity to point people to you, Lord. So Lord, I specifically ask that this week, each and every one of us has the opportunity and jumps on that opportunity, takes action on that opportunity and shares 
the gospel. That we grow sensitive enough to see the spirit at work in others, that people who are thirsting, people that are craving, people that are feeling that lostness, that loneliness, that seclusion, that ugliness, that we show them where relief is found, Lord. That they are to cling to our Savior and bring us into a right relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of life and love that you've given us. Thank you for drawing us into a personal and intimate relationship with you, for abundantly satisfying us. Lord, we thank this and say these things in your Son's name, through the Spirit. Amen.